17th century Dutch master, Rembrandt. He was a painter, but he was also an etcher. And he is generally considered, according to art historians, the greatest uh, painter and printmaker in European art history, and certainly, uh, without a doubt, uh, most important in Dutch history. Rembrandt was raised by very pious, godly parents, and uh, very early on, people saw that, you know, this kid is not just making nice pictures in art class. There's something amazing about this young man. He went on to have a very, very successful, obviously, career, and his reputation was known really all over, uh, all over Europe. Uh, but later in his life, uh, what most, most people don't understand and don't know is that he, uh, he had an, an enormous amount of personal tragedy and, and financial disaster. And uh, I can't help but think his financial disaster and the hardship that he had in the last few years of his life didn't somehow prompt him just several months before he died, several months before he died, to paint one of the most famous scenes that right now resides in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia, and in my dining room in Roseland, New Jersey. It's entitled, The Return of the Prodigal Son. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but this is probably one of his, his greatest paintings. And this morning, as we continue in our series on forgiveness, the second week today, I want to talk about the story that's the subject of Rembrandt's most famous painting. American novelist Mark Twain once called the story of the prodigal son the greatest short story ever written. This may be true, but its greatness goes well beyond what I think Twain was thinking about, its literary greatness, because it's, it's the only thing that we have as far as, uh, you know, a, a story where we can truly understand, truly understand in a single portrait what forgiveness is all about, that we could truly understand both the basis of our forgiveness and our forgiveness of others, which we're going to get to in subsequent weeks. Now, last week, if you were here for the beginning of our series, um, we talked uh, about the fact that a lot of times we think we know what our greatest need is. Remember if you were here last week? And uh, we we looked at the story in Mark chapter 2 of that paralytic man whose uh, friends dug a hole. I think it was Peter's house, but Jesus was preaching inside the house, and they lowered him down because they thought that his greatest need was what? A new set of legs. I mean, this guy couldn't walk, and his greatest need, the way that life would end up working for him, is if somehow God strengthened his legs. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, would put his hands on his legs, and he'd be able to walk all of a sudden, well, like he used to in his younger days. And, and, and that's what he thought his greatest need was. But what did Jesus do to him when he got about eye level coming down in that pallet? He looked at him eye level, and he said, your sins are forgiven. Why did he say that? He said that because he knew and he understood that this guy thought his legs were his greatest need, but he had another greatest need. You know what it was? It was to be forgiven, to be set free from his sins, to understand what he was about to do, that he was about to go to Calvary. He was about to shed his blood. He was born to die for the sins of mankind. That's his greatest need. He knew that. Jesus understood that. Now, once we know our greatest need, which is forgiveness, uh, we need to talk about uh, the basis of where forgiveness comes from. 
which is God's forgiveness of us. On this Mother's Day, I, uh, I'd like to tell you a story. And the story goes like this. There once was a young man who lived many years ago who didn't understand how good he had it. Sound familiar to anybody here? Okay. Uh, he had all the comforts of home. He had all the comforts of family. He was very comfortable. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say he was probably pampered. Uh, we find out later in the story that his father was a man of some means. He had some, you know, financial uh, means, uh, not only because he employed free, you know, free servants, but because he employed slaves. This was not some kid off the mean streets. He's not a kid from the hood, okay? Uh, he had all the advantages that most uh, kids his age never even sniffed. And I am willing to bet, this is just a guess, but I'm willing to bet that uh, not a whole lot was expected of him. Some things are expected of him, but really not a whole lot. You know, do your chores, do your homework, follow the rules that keep the house running smoothly. Let your parents keep, you know, a, a, a morsel of sanity, you know, between now and the time you leave the house. But still, even then, he felt constricted. He felt tied down. He felt like he had no freedom. And he wanted to take charge of his life. He wanted to make his own decisions. He wanted to choose as he wanted to choose and come and go as he saw fit. No more curfews. No more studies. No more chores. This young man wanted to be free. He was meant for bigger things than the farm. I mean, this, is, this environment's killing me. I got to get out of here. And he would tell his father that. I'm sure there were many times when the father and the son went back and forth about this issue. And I could just picture, I could just hear the father saying, son, freedom isn't doing what you want whenever you want. That's not freedom. Freedom is being what you were designed to be and doing what you were designed to do. But you know what? When you're young and you're 17 or you're 18, you don't want your father preaching to you, right? And he didn't either. He wanted no part of it. He would get up, shove his chair under the table, go into his room, slam the door behind him. One day he devises a plan. He's sick of the situation at home. He's, he's even sicker of his father's interference in his life. So he goes to his father and he makes a request that even today would stick like a dagger in the heart. But back then was almost almost unthinkable. He wants money to get out of the situation he finds himself in. He wants out. But he doesn't want a loan. The Bible says that in the passage that was just read to us by Bob, that he wants his inheritance. See, he'd been waiting for his father to die, but the guy just kept living, and he seemed to be in perfectly good health, and that was a big problem. And so he says in, verse chapter, uh, in chapter 15 and verse 12, he says this, Father, give me my share of the estate. See, he wanted right then and there what eventually would be coming to him at his father's death. I remember one time, well, there was a couple of times, uh, having a conversation with my own father when he was alive. And, and it always started, my father always started like this. If something ever happens to me, and I'm like, what do you mean? You mean if you win this? If you win the lottery or something, if something ever happens to me, I know what that meant. That was prefacing a conversation on when he died. You know, Dad, we're talking about when you die, right? 
And so he would just, and he'd talk about this, and, you know, you can go into the, the safe is downstairs, and, you know, and he would tell me stuff like that. And it was always like, it was a very uncomfortable conversation. Did you ever have an uncomfortable conversation with one of your parents like that? It's not something that you're going to initiate. You really don't want to talk about it. I want my father to live. I wanted him to use the money for himself. You want to go on a trip? Go on a trip. You want to go to Europe? Go to Europe. Do what you got to do. I, 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 you know, I, him talking about the money and this and that and the inheritance. Inheritance, it just was kind of, it, it was a little creepy. I get it, but I don't, it was uncomfortable. But this young man really wanted out. And even though anybody listening would have said, that is so disrespectful. That is so out of line. He went ahead with it anyway. You know, basically he was, by a young man going to his father and saying, listen, I can't wait for you to die any longer. You know, I just can't wait anymore. I've been putting fat into your foods. I'm hoping you're going to have a heart attack one of these days, but it doesn't seem to be working. You know, basically to say, I can't wait until you die, uh, you know, and I got to get going now. Uh, it was just incredible. And Jesus, he's telling this story now. Remember, there's a bunch of people that are listening to the story. And as I said back then, it was, it was even more shocking than now. And Jesus wants them to feel creepy. He wants his audience to feel the shock of the request. Now, some experts in Middle Eastern culture tell us that this young man, like I said, was virtually expressing a death wish for his father. And, and, and again, like I said before, a, a father could initiate that. It wasn't out of the question in that culture for the father to initiate, but a young man never did. A child never did with a parent. In fact, Kenneth Bailey, an expert, said this. He said, to my knowledge, in all of Middle Eastern literature, aside from this parable, from ancient times to the present, there is no case of any son, older or younger, asking for his inheritance from a father who's in good health. And I got to tell you something, news of this would have been a scandal in the community. It wouldn't just be like, did you hear what that brat did? It would have been like, you got to be kidding me. That's how bad it was. To say to your father that, you know, you would be better off if he was dead, that would not have gone over well at all. His request would have sent a shudder through his listeners. Now, I know what I'd do if I was a father. Um, yeah, some of you know what I probably would do. You know, you, you want to you wanna go, you want to go, there's the door. And guess what? You're not getting any of my money to go do what you want to do. And, I, you know, this father seems a hundred times better than me, so he probably, he probably didn't even do that. Uh, and I'm sure he went the other route. He probably tried to persuade his son, you know, don't go through with this plan. You know, he would have probably surely told him that, you know what, you don't even know what you don't know. You don't know what the far country's like. You don't know what it's like when once you get outside the confines of this town and this village, you have no idea what the world is like. See, I do. And I just want to spare you. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to keep you from how harsh life can be, at least for a little while. He wouldn't listen. So the text tells us that he finally, the father, finally relents. And he calls his two sons in, uh, and he divides the inheritance according to 
Deuteronomy chapter 21, where the older brother gets two-thirds and the younger brother gets one-third of the estate. Now, it wouldn't be like it is today. You know, today, if something like this was going to happen, you know, they, they take, uh, you know, all the, uh, the money that's in the accounts, and here's the stocks, and here's the bonds, and, the, you know, kind of tabulate it up and, 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 and just divide it. What, what this father had to do was, you know, divide real physical, his real physical wealth, which was, back then, land. It was his property. So he says in verse 12, it says in verse 12, so he divided his property between them. But listen, when you're ready to take a trip, when you're going to the far country, you're really not interested in land. You know, you're not, you're not filling your pockets with dirt and then bringing it, you know, to the, to the new land that you're going to. And so the, 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 young, the younger son would have had to sell his land, his part of the estate. He probably wanted to do it quickly. He couldn't wait to get out of town. And he probably had a, he probably had a fire sale, 20 cents on the, on the dollar. And the people of that town, if they got wind of that, would have been horrified. Horrified. See, land to them wasn't just something that was valuable and precious. Land to them was sacred. It was sacred. Because the farm, almost every farm had probably been in the family for generation upon generation upon generation. And if you're going to take that land and you're going to sell it, for any reason other than you are on the brink of starvation. You throwing dirt on the grandfather and the great-great-grandfather and for generations in the past, and you're sullying our name. You are throwing dirt on our name and the memory of our ancestors. You just didn't do that. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. Um, the text would lead us to believe that he never figured he'd ever step foot in that, uh, that crummy town again. He, uh, you know, he wasn't uh, uh, you know, thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm just going for an extended vacation. He gathered up everything. He gathered up, you know, the box with his you know, teddy bear when he was three years old and all those old toys and the old papers from fifth grade. And he took all that stuff that was normally up in the father's attic and he, and he put it in the U-Haul when he left. He took everything. There was no reason. There was nothing back there that he would ever come back for again. So he takes off. And he is overjoyed that he is out from his father's thumb, out from underneath his father's rule, Gone from his restrictions, gone from the crummy village that he grew up in. He was headed for a distant land and freedom. And he had a pocket full of cash and just a few ideas on how he was going to spend it. Just a few. Anyone who has been estranged or worse from a child, you are the ones that probably could relate to the grief that this father must have been feeling as he watched the figure of his dear son walking out, carrying his possessions through the main street of that town. And as he watched that figure that he had raised from an infant, 16, 17, 18 years disappear, 
his heart would have been broken. It would have been absolutely broken. Grieving, grieving, not so much because now he wouldn't know what his son would be doing on a day-by-day basis, but knowing what he would be doing as he went to the far country. And so he grieved, and he pitied the son. Well, the young man reached his destination. He was doing, he was doing pretty good. Bought a condo, bought some new threads, you know, visited the American Eagle outlet there in, in, in the far country. He learned the difference between a margarita and a Manhattan and how to mix them himself at home. He learned which wines go with which food at which occasion. And, you know, it's, it's funny. He got to the far country, and it was amazing how the people in the far country were so much more friendly than in the village that he came from. You know, those hayseeds back home, you know, they, they, they didn't know any of this stuff. These people were very cosmopolitan. I mean, they, they, they knew how to live life. He would throw a party, and all kinds of nice people would show up. People who really cared about him. People who laughed at his jokes. And the women, the women all seemed to be attracted to him. Unbelievable. And the guys, even the guys a little bit older than him, they seemed to look up to him. They would ask him for advice about things. So it doesn't come as a surprise when in verse 13 we read, And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. It's funny how uh, it never occurred to him that maybe some of his appeal was the fact that he picked up the tab every time there was a party or they went out to lunch. And it never ever seemed to dawn on him that everything that he had was from his father. Everything. Well, the young man never really thought much about working in the far country. Uh, you know, he didn't really have to. I mean, he had plenty, he had plenty of money. And, and why work? You know what? He had discovered some hobbies that he really liked. So he really was into his hobbies now and, and you know, kind of going out with his friends. So he couldn't have time to work. Then one day he goes to the, the local ATM, and to his surprise, he finds out there's no more money. It's over. It's gone. Not, nothing. Not even a dime. And about that same time, a serious situation which had already begun to develop before he arrived in the far country now got much, much worse. See, the rains had not come for some time, and now people were beginning to starve. He really hadn't noticed these things you know, before, that things were so tough for so many people because they had a full bank account, so he didn't need to. But now he did. He was upset. He was very upset. But he wasn't devastated. Here's why he wasn't devastated. Uh, yes, he'd have to get a job. Boo-hoo. Now, he, you know, no more parties. But after all, this is the one thing he had going for him. He had tons of friends. He had made really, really good, you know, meaningful friendships when he was living in, in, uh, you know, in that far country. Much better friends than he had living back in, in the village. So he went to his friends for help. And they treated him like he had leprosy. He was a Jew in a strange land, and now he had no money. He went out, he looked for work. But, you know, during, during a famine, there is no work. There, there's just no work. He managed to get a day job here, a few hours of work there. 
But he spent most of his time in the city square, like most other young men, just waiting, hoping, praying that he would get hired per diem. You know, just, just one day's work so he could eat. There was one time, there was one time when he thought about going home. But he had already burned all those bridges. That was definitely not a viable solution to his problem. So as the hunger pains began to increase in his stomach, he decided to do the unthinkable. Verse 15 says this. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. It was a task that was unthinkable to a Jew who looked at these animals as unclean. In other words, this young man, you know how you say, well, you know what, they got to hit bottom. We have arrived at bottom. This is it. Now, remember something. Jesus is telling this story to a crowd of people. And every person who heard him speak would, would have, when they heard, you know, and he went to feed the pigs, there would have been a physical reaction. Everybody would have winced, you know, uh, because the, the, there was nothing lower for a Hebrew man. There was nothing lower on the planet than that. But, folks, as you know, desperation knows, uh, knows no pride. When you're desperate, you'll do just about anything. And, and you got this proud young man now. He is living with the pigs, and he's eating with them. Verse 16 says, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but he wasn't allowed to. You know why he wasn't allowed to? Because all those delicacies that were thrown out into the mud and the dirt, those are for the pigs. They weren't for humans. Because when there is a famine, pigs are more important than people. They just are. They're much more valuable. When the pigs were done, when they were, you know, done grunting and doing it, and they went to the other side of the pen, then he would go over. He would pick up some of the pods and other things that were left. He'd walk over to the water trough. He'd kind of brush it, get the mud off. And he would eat the scraps. But he had to wait in line till the pigs were done. It's funny. It's funny how freedom and the far country could look different from inside the pig pen. You know, I get, I get the feeling that some of the people that were listening to Jesus, remember, he's telling the story to people a group of people, I, and I got this feeling as you're reading through the story that uh, they probably thought Jesus is about to say the end. You know what? And if he had said the end right there, I think people would have been very, very happy, the people that were listening to him. I mean, you know, who does this kid think he is? I hate this kid. I didn't met this kid. I hate this kid. I, you know what? He got, this incorrigible young man got exactly what he had coming to him. If he, if, if he died in the pig pen, yeah, that would have been even better yet if he starved to death in the, in the pig pen. He met his bed, let him lie in it now, let him suffer. He's getting what he deserves. Folks, yes or no? Just keep it in your heart. There are fewer or less devastating feelings in this life than when you realize you have acted foolishly and now you're experiencing the consequences of your very, very foolish decisions. It was, he was experiencing in the pig pen a loneliness, the likes that he had never experienced before. He had been a fool with a capital F, and he knew it. He knew it. 
But the pig pen had another effect on this young man. The scripture says in verse 17, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, it's as if when he, you know, Jesus is saying when he decided to strike out on his own for the far country and leave the village, leave his father and leave his home, he was losing his grip on reality. From that moment on, he started losing his grip on reality. As he squandered his father's money on riotous living, there was a haze that set in, began to set in, and the longer it went, that haze got denser and got thicker. But now he's sitting in the pigsty with the pain of hunger in his belly and a hollow look of suffering on his face. And he came to his senses, and he began to think about home. He began to picture home. He thought about his father's house. He thought about his father's servants. And he realized even his father's servants, they had plenty to eat. They wore clean clothes. They lived a life with a sense of dignity. And so he begins to make plans that even a month before would have been unthinkable, just unthinkable. He begins to make plans to retrace his steps and to go home. He would go back home, his plan was, and to ask his father to hire him as one of his servants. Now, it's interesting He wanted to be hired as a servant. He didn't want to become one of his father's slaves. A slave had, you know, everything was provided for the slave. They really made no decisions in life. You go here, you do this. This is, you lay down, blah, blah. You know, every every decision was made, but not a servant. See, a servant was hired out. A servant was hired, and he did his day's work, and then he went home to his own home at night, and he came back the next day. And the young guy was probably thinking, you know what? If he hires me as a servant, maybe you know, I'll have enough money to live and just a little bit, a little bit other money to maybe invest and save. And in time, I know it's going to take a long time, but in time, maybe I could pay my father back. And then maybe my father will accept me again. And these townspeople that are going to be looking at me and want to kill me and snub me, they are, uh, maybe they, they'd say, you know what? New lease. He tried. He's trying to make it right. Let's, let, let's give the kid a break. See, that's why he said that. Haddon Robinson once said this about this boy. But what he did not understand is that he had not broken his father's rules. He had broken his father's heart. And you don't repair a broken heart with money. So he begins to make plans to go home. Notice, now listen, he took the first steps in repenting and asking for forgiveness. He was, now look, he's sitting in the pigsty, he's hungry beyond words, and his first step was changing his mind about going home. That was his first step. Now, I don't know how deep his repentance is, I really don't, but I really believe this, I believe his repentance was real. There were some real emotions and real change of mind in there. I think it was genuine. He knew he had done wrong, and he was trying to go back and maybe pay his father back. He knew that it was going to take a a big superhuman effort, but he thought that maybe I can pay pay him back. He was starting, listen, he was starting to come to his senses. And so he picks himself up. He's got nothing to pack. That's all gone. And he starts home. One step at a time. Really tough. First half mile was like, 
I don't think I'm doing it right. I, you know, uh, this is not a mistake, I don't think. And then as he got you know, further into the trip, he said, well, I'm this far. I might as well see it out. Uh, he must have thought about a lot of things as he retraced those steps back to his father's, heart, his father's home. He must have thought, first of all, the people living in the village, oh, shoot, I have to go through the village to get to my father's house. When they take one look at me, uh, what is going to happen then? They're going to want to tear me apart. What about my older brother? What about the rest of my family? What about the other servants? What about my dad? I had treated them all with contempt. You know, what what would they say to me? What would the reaction of my dad be when all of a sudden I show up to the door and I knock at the door and he opens it up and he sees me? I know I forfeited my my right to sonship, but would he hire me as as a servant? He starts to rehearse a speech, which is what we do. If we don't want to really screw up and we got one shot at it, you rehearse it. You just kind of go through it over and over again when his father would see him. And he says in verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, and here's where the, this, the rehearsing, the speech comes in. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Okay, well, let me think about this. Father, I've sinned. Okay, first thing is about the sin. I've sinned against heaven and against you. You know, put God in there. You know, I've done all of that. Uh, I, I, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Okay, don't forget that. He's going to be looking at you. If he starts looking, starts getting mad at you and you see his eyes start to flame up or something, step two, you know, you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant. Last thing, don't forget. Don't forget the cell. You want to be a hired servant. You, you want it. Don't forget. And he's doing it. Mile. After mile, after mile, he's going through this. But he never could have imagined in a thousand years what happened. Verse 20 says this. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You know something? I, I don't think that one day... He was simply glancing up, and all of a sudden, he sees his son coming. I have a feeling, knowing the heart of this father, that at the end of the day, he probably stood on the porch. He sat down, and he looked down the main street of that town, and he went over and over and over again, the picture of his son leaving, and then trying with every fiber in his brain and body to picture that same figure coming down. And one day he's sitting there and uh, sees somebody down at the end of the lane. Just another person, sort of way far off. His eyesight at this time is, you know, not 20 20. And he's looking, and then all of a sudden he says, That looks very, that looks familiar. There's something familiar about that. And as the figure gets a little closer, he says, The gate is slower. He's hunched over. He's. Near emaciated, but it's my son. That is my son. And it says, the text says, and he was filled with compassion for him and he ran to him. Because that father knew when he hit town, he was he was gonna be food basically for the people in the village. And they would tear him apart. So his father 
ran to meet him. Now, folks, the fact that the father ran to meet him was more significant than we could ever know. For a grown man to run in that culture was an absolute breach of dignity. Because for him to run, he'd have to pick up his robe, you'd see his legs, and you'd see his underwear as he ran through town to meet his son. It's just, it's just an embarrassing situation. And he knew that when people saw in the village, when people saw him do that, he would be, he would be despised, not as much as the son, but pretty close. One said this, someone wrote, they said, what the father did was a visual display of love and humiliation. Up till now, the father's love was in his heart, but now, now he displays his love by literally humiliating himself before that community and taking the shame of the encounter upon himself. Verse 20 says this, He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You know what? He's right. Of all the bad decisions he made, of all the ridiculous things he had said, that was right. That was right on. But as soon as the words begin to come out of his mouth... He really could have saved his breath. He didn't even get the chance to do the punchline. He didn't, he didn't get a chance to make the sell. Because the father calls his servants in verse 22, and he says to them, you know, bring the best robe in the house. Put my best robe on this filthy, bony, emaciated frame of a body. Take, take my signet ring. Uh, the, 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 the signet ring that carries with it all the authority of our family. Put it on his finger. These shoes, you know, that are really just for slaves because they're they're worn through. He's got blisters on his feet. Take what's left of those sandals and put shoes on his feet. And bring the calf, you know, the special one, the one that's real fat now. The one that we were saving for the most important uh, uh, feast day. What could be better than this? Because he said in verse 24, this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. There is a, uh, a Buddhist story that uh, provides a very interesting contrast to the Lord's story. It also tells of a son who uh, left home and, uh, you know, bad situation, and years later he returns in rags and in misery. And his, his, as the story goes, his degradation was so profound that when he saw his father, he didn't even recognize his father. He was, he was, his mind was so fractured and he was so close to death that, that he didn't even realize who his own father was. But his father recognized him. And he told the servants, his servants, to take him into the mansion and clean him up. And the father kept his, his identity secret, but he wanted to watch the son's response. Well, as the weeks went by, gradually, he changed. The son became respectful and considerate and moral. Satisfied, the story goes, the the father finally revealed his identity and formally accepted his son back as an heir. You know what I think? I think a lot of people that were listening to the story that Jesus was telling that day 
would have said, now that's a story. That's a real good story. But folks, I got to tell you something. God is not into religious folks. He's really not. Folks who feel that they've made it and they have no deep sense or need of forgiveness. But let me tell you this. When someone takes a step, just one step from the far country back to God, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the angels sing. The angels in heaven sing. And the orchestra strikes up and starts playing. Because nothing delights God more than when people decide to come back home. Psalm chapter 32 says this, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, said, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. All our sins. Do you know what thrills the heart of God? Do you know? When someone in the far country feels a hunger and says, I'd be better off home. I would be better off home. And when you come and you take one step toward home, the Bible says that the Father will be there to meet you and he will forgive you of all your sins. The only time in the Bible that God is ever pictured as running is when he runs to someone who says, Father, I have sinned. I am not worthy to be called your son. I am not worthy to be called your daughter. And do you know what he does? The Bible says that the father picks up his robes and he runs. He runs to meet us. And he smothers her with kisses. And he welcomes her home. Not because uh, she promises to make atonement. Not because she deserves it. But because her sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that we can add to what has already been done on the cross. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says when you take one step toward home... The Father will be there to meet you and will forgive you of all your sins. Folks, it is the basis of the forgiveness that we'll be talking about for another month. It is the basis of why you, why I, can forgive others. 